0: Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 431, the history of Turpin Custom Game Calls with Steve Turpin. And I am your co-host, and the guy who is... Ready for deer season to be over for a little different reason than he was last week.
1: And I'm the guy who scared the tar out of his dogs this morning.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering if how you scared your dogs has something to do with the picture that you sent me earlier today.
1: So, exciting news. I, may, I put out three, I only had time the other day, I put out a bunch, I put a trap line out, mostly for coons and possums, but I did have an extra 30, 40 minutes, and I was able to get three coyote traps in the ground, and this morning, I went two for three, That's so pretty so I got two coyotes out of three traps, both big old males, and so what I do is I carry my lab and my golden retriever with me, and they, I, I keep them... In the truck with me until I get past, because the coyote traps are in the actual field, and you have to drive through the field to get to the bottomland woods where all my coon traps are. Yeah. So I keep them in the truck with me while checking the two or three coyote traps in the field, so that they don't a either mess with the trap, or if I did catch one, get tangled up with a coyote. Yes. You know. Yeah, and then once I'm past, good. once I'm past those traps, I let the dogs out and they can run because. You know, the the coon traps and everything, they're all dog-proof. I'm not worried about it, you know? Yeah. So, anyway, they're in the truck. I pull up down there, and here's this coyote in my trap. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got one. You know, it was my first ever coyote in a trap. I was super excited. Get out. Get my 22. The dogs are in the truck just going nuts because they can see this coyote. They're watching. They're barking, barking, barking. I shoot the coyote, and it was dead silent. I have to imagine from the dog's perspective, they see this other canine in a field <laughs> and then watch me effectively execute it on the spot,
0: uh-huh.
1: <laughs> pick it up by its tail, and hurl it into the bed of the truck. <laughs> and I must say, and I'm not even making this up, they both minded me really well this morning. <laughs> like When I said here, they were coming.
0: <laughs> yeah. They probably will for a little while.
1: So I believe I have instilled a healthy amount of fear into the dogs, and they respect me even more.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. So did you let them, after the dispatch occurred of the two that you killed, did you let them check out the, the coyotes?
1: No, I did not. I put them in the bed of the truck. I don't want fooling with them and you know tearing into them or something. Uh, Mac did get hold of one of the possums I caught, pretty mm. good. Made sure he was good and dead. But it that was sounds tasty. Yeah, he was fired up to kill him, but it was a it was a good trapline morning. I got three possums, a coon, and two coyotes, so that was good. But. I got to tell you, and then I'll let you explain your guy who, but I do want to make this observation known to the listeners trapping wise. And I've said this, you know, what you hear is that when you trap a property, you know, pretty quickly, at least this is what people say, quickly, you know, within not long period of time, more predators will just fill in that void, right? And they come right back in from the neighbor, Mm -hmm. you know? That's what you hear over and over again. Here's my observation. I trapped the same property in September. That's five months ago, okay? I trapped it for eight days, and I caught 48 coons and possums. The first night I caught 11, then six, five, and like four every other night. So keep that in mind. 48, September, five months ago. Now I'm back on the same property, haven't trapped it in five months, nothing. Been duck hunting, hadn't done anything. Same property, same traps, all over the place. A lot of them are in the exact same spot because... You know, hey, it was successful in this ditch last time and put one there. Right. Four nights, I've caught five total. Hmm. You tell me. I mean, I'm no scientist, but I'm just saying I'm observing that they aren't coming right back onto my problem. Right. And we've experimented with the coon dog. Last year in two hunts in February with the coon dog, we killed 11 the first night in two hours and nine the second time in, like, two or three hours. This year we had the same exact coon dog out in December and hunted him three times, two of those times until 2 to 3 a.m., and we killed one raccoon. Mm -hmm. I'm just, uh, hey, you know, maybe maybe it's not hard evidence or whatever but i'm just telling you what i'm seeing and that is that on our property the raccoons and possums are not filling in the void yet and sorry i'm on a tangent every coon and possum i've caught other than one is male so the ones i'm catching are the rutting males and i i know that so they're coming from the neighbors they're looking for love and i'm catching the males and then i don't think this void i've created on our property because i'm at 208 predators now for the year on three properties and I don't think this void will be filled again until the young are raised with the mothers on the neighboring lands and get old enough to disperse. And I bet at that point, some will move back into our property. That's just my observation. Yeah. And I think it makes sense, but I'm simple-minded, so.
0: Yeah. it's It'll be interesting to see, you know, and I talked to a few people at Unicoy who have the same interest or intrigue that I do about your trapping efforts. And that is, you know, is it going to relate to more polts on the ground? And ultimately, yes. you know, that's what you want to see, what really what we all want to see, you know, from yeah. your experience. And
1: you that's know, the next stage. Yeah. And, yeah. and
0: even the scientists, even Will Goolsby and Marcus Lashley would say to you, your experience is what your experience is, you know, yeah, that a scientific study has its own results and you know, those are, those are all well and good, but you know, yeah, it's hard to argue with a landowner who says I've got a lot more turkeys on my property because I've been trapping it for the past four years or five years.
1: Yeah. That will be the next stage. Uh, I've already talked to my brothers. We're going to pull together our cellular trail cameras. And run them, you know, in June and July, and see what it looks like if we can get pulp pictures, you know. And so that'll be part one of the study, I guess. To see if we have more poults, and then part two will be if we see Jake's next spring or hear a lot of gobbling in two years, you know. Yeah. And so because they may not raise the poults on us, you know, they may raise them on the neighbors we might yeah, not see them, but. Yep. We're gonna we're gonna do our best to monitor what's happening, but I I'm keeping very detailed you know notes. I know I've killed 114 raccoons, 75 possums, five skunks, six coyotes, and a bobcat. You know I know exactly what I've killed. I know when I'm killing them, and I can confidently say through observation, with a double crossed using a dog, the same dog, and using traps, they have not moved back in with five months of no pressure on them. They did not move back in to the same level that they were. And that's obvious to me. Yeah. So I, I feel confident in saying that. But I thought that'd be an interesting observation to give the listeners. And I'll continue to update you all on how these efforts go. So, Quick that's, question. That's where...
0: In your notebook, have you been keeping stats or, or data, I should say, on weather on the particular nights when you were had traps out?
1: yeah uh, I have and not but phase? I yeah no moon phase or anything like that okay. I know I know warmer nights are way better way better. We're, the we're, cold nights I think they just stay dinned up.
0: We've had four pretty warm yeah. relatively warm nights.
1: Yeah like last night was the warmest night and that was the best night I've had on the trap line. yeah you know and and the possums if you get one of those nights where it's like misty kind of rain and warm, hmm you're gonna catch the possums i swear and you'll eat like i see them driving in i'll see them on the roads you know getting there they're yeah. they're just moving and that they like that misty crappy kind of weather when it's warm i don't know there's something to that but definitely like i honestly if i saw that the weather was going to be freezing freezing cold it's for where i am now if you're in maine it's going to be different because it's always cold you know but for tennessee if it's going to be like 20 degrees for seven days in a row or something i'm not i'm not fooling with it I, i'm gonna wait on a little warm spell to, to deploy my trap line because mm-hmm. i just i really like putting out a bunch of traps hammer them for a week i can take a week every morning get my morning coffee run the trap line go to work one full week and i mean you just i think you decimate them pretty good if you put a bunch of traps out yeah so that's mm-hmm. just what i've been doing i wonder if there's we'll
0: misty warm mornings for the possum you know if that mist gets in the female possum's eyes and makes the male possums look more attractive so that they'll want to breed
1: <laughs> i don't know but there's something
0: some kind of ugly
1: yeah i'm telling you i guess ugly possum likes an ugly you know morning i don't know but they <laughs> they do like i have not caught a possum in three nights and then last night misty crappy really warm three possums you know, yeah. something gets them up about that weather. I don't know what it is, but they get to move it. Yeah. So, anyway, those are a couple of observations. Thought, you know, somebody might be interested in that that's out trapping. You know, if you are trapping, at least in my opinion, even if you're trapping now, September, July, your efforts aren't wasted, which seems to be kind of a message that's tossed around is that the only time that's worth trapping is april or march you know Mm -hmm. and i don't think that's the case i really don't i feel like judging by what i've seen on our properties when you kill one it's minus one until that raccoon can be replaced with baby raccoons which isn't until it leaves the mother which is well after turkeys are out of the egg so i think you're still minus one
0: yeah so why
1: are you ready for deer season now? <laughs> well,
0: I am ready to get into the woods with a predator collar. I'm ready to really kind of get serious about some trapping and get some traps out. And so, Good. you know, I, I've the hunting club that I'm in. There's quite a few members in there, and some of those guys, all they do is deer hunt, and you know i don't want to be disrespectful of them they're not necessarily out trouncing around through the turkey woods during turkey season you know while i'm out trying to turkey hunt so i want to be respectful of them so you know i've not been setting traps on that property but i want to get out there and get some traps set and i'm looking forward to running a trap line in the mornings and doing some predator hunting as well so it'll be fun to do that i told tammy the other day i said well i I plan on continuing to go down to the club maybe one day a weekend. I'm not going to spend the night down at the camp, but I'll go down to the club and run traps and do some predator hunting. And I said, you're welcome to go go hiking if you want to while I'm out Mm -hmm. doing that. She's like, oh, okay, that'd be fun. So anyway, I'm ready to get after them.
1: Good deal. Yeah, I hope you get them. Really do. And I got to pick up my traps tomorrow because I'm headed out of town for a week for vacation. Yeah, you are. And then I'm going to try to run a big line again before you and I depart in 20 days to go hunt turkeys. Man, 20 days. Is that not awesome?
0: 44 days, 15 hours, 9 minutes, and 14 seconds from the opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. 44 days.
1: Wow. Uh That's. it's coming, man. It's really coming. You know, I think I've been seeing some trail camera videos and stuff from some of my friends. I think the gobblers are starting to figure things out amongst themselves mm-hmm. and kind of figuring out who's gonna be the boss hog for the area. So it's a little strutting going on. If you're out in the woods, you might actually hear them gobble a little bit this time of year, just trying to establish that dominance. And yeah, it's coming fast. This little warm spell, man. It's just got. You know, when you walk out in the morning and it's warm and the birds are chirping, you know it's close, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to mention in the intro this week, we mentioned it last week towards the end of the episode, but I wanted to remind listeners who may not have heard that, that Brent Rogers, good friend of the show, and turkey historian, in my opinion, will be giving a seminar at the NWTF convention next week in Nashville. So if you're going to Nashville and you're going to the NWTF convention Make sure you stop by and listen to Brent Rogers' seminar, and there's going to be some Mossy Oak stuff involved. and It's just going to be a really interesting seminar based on like literature and history of turkeys. So make sure you go to his seminar. I don't have the email in front of me. I believe it was at 2 o'clock. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. So make sure you all go to that. I just want to mention that again in the intro, so if somebody doesn't like listening to me and you ramble after the interview, that they hear it now.
0: And the NWTF convention time is here. Yeah. In, it's in a week, it'll be next time week. To gather in Nashville. Yep, 50,000 other turkey hunting fanatics and just immerse yourself in the, the glorious noise and madness that is the NWTF convention and sports show.
1: Yeah. With the popularity of turkey hunting, I wouldn't doubt if it's 150,000 this year.
0: Yeah, well I think they're expecting a bigger crowd with it being their fiftieth anniversary. Oh, so
1: fiftieth anniversary, there's feels like fifty times more turkey hunters than ever and mm-hmm. you know. It's so if all right. the guys do hunt my local WMA or at the convention, there should be at least hundred and fifty thousand. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, babe. Well, well
1: speaking of Tennessee, Tennessee yeah. conventions and, you know, trapping in Tennessee, we have got a guest who, if you don't recognize this name, Steve Turpin, Turpin being emphasis on that, that is about as historical a Turkey name as you can hear. Steve Turpin, the, was he? The great nephew of Tom Turpin. Yeah. I think it's great nephew. Yeah. And... We have him on this week to talk Turpin game calls, the history of Turpin game calls, some Tennessee history. There's a lot of interesting information. Then we get off on a massive tangent about season delays <laughs> towards the end, but it was it was he who did that. And uh, anyway, we're gonna have Steve on. He is a Tennessean. Tom Turpin was one of the forefathers of turkey hunting, I would say. Wrote one, I guess, what does Steve say, the second oldest book on turkey hunting? Yeah. And it's a great book, by the way. If you can find a copy from Tom Turpin, it's a great book. It's quite the history of turkey hunting. It's one I definitely would add to your collection if you can find a reprint of it. You find an original, you're one lucky son of a gun. But you can find a reprint. There's a lot of them out there. And try to get hold of one of those. But what do you say we hop in here and talk to Steve Turpin? You ready?
0: Yeah, it's a long interview. So you guys listen in and enjoy, and we'll see you on the other
1: side. See you on the other side.
0: Hey everybody. Cameron and I are glad to tell you that we have on the phone with us tonight Steve Turpin with Turpin Custom Game Calls. And well, that last name should ring a bell for some of you guys out there, especially if you're a call collector. But if you are just a regular old turkey hunter and you don't say you're a call collector, I'm gonna tell you what a very wise man in Mississippi told me. He said, We were talking and I said, Well, I, I don't really consider myself a collector. I you know, I have a few calls, but I don't consider myself a collector. He said, So you have more than one call? And he said and I said, Yeah. And he said, well, then you're a collector. <laughs> so I would imagine the vast majority of us listen to this interview tonight are call collectors in some shape, form, or fashion, because I'm going to bet we all have more than one turkey call. But what we're going to talk about with Steve is, well, Steve comes from a, a long line, a rich history of turkey call makers. And that Turpin name is, well, it belongs to a style of a box call, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And Steve, thank you for taking time out to join us. You're a, I guess, technically a a third generation turkey call maker, but really and truthfully, the way you explained it to us, you're a fourth generation turkey call maker. And you know, we can talk about that a little bit as well. But Tell everybody how you are and where where are you coming to us from tonight. Well, I'm in. Uh, I'm based out of Memphis, Tennessee. Fantastic. Good deal. You guys survive the ice storm? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we so did,
2: glad we didn't uh, lose power. So yeah, keep it keep the machinery running. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's hard to lose power to your lathe. So
0: yeah, when your living comes from that, I would imagine that's pretty difficult. Well, good deal. Well, thank you for taking time out to. Come be on the show with us and let us pick your brain a little bit. So I guess if you wouldn't mind, you know, before we get too deep into this, I want to see if you'll participate in a little Q&A session with us called the Rapid Fire Q&A.
2: That'd be fine.
0: All right. So what this is is 30 questions. I'm going to set the timer up, put down my Turpin style box call and <laughs> and pick up my phone to set my timer up. So I'm going to set up the timer. We're going to run through these questions just as quick as we can. I'm going to ask you the question. You answer as best you can. You can pass or, you know, whatever. If I hit a, a question that you either can't answer or don't want to answer, we can pass on it and move on to the next one. So, w- But if you pass on all 30, I, m- I might have to call you out on that one. i might i might know a few (laughs) i believe you're gonna know them all they're all just kind of personal preferences and that kind of thing and then once we go through these you know we'll see how you how you did in the competition i know a lot of you call makers are big into competitions and so we got one right here and a fellow you probably know fairly well mark Prudham, is the current holder of the fastest time at two minutes and 17.48 seconds. So that's the goal. Okay. That means I've got to talk very fast and I'm from the south. I don't know. We'll see if we can figure this out. All right. So I'm going to start the timer on the first question and then we will go from there. Wild turkey, grilled, baked, or fried? Fried. Wild turkey on the rocks, neat with cola or with water? Cola. Number of grand slams? Two. Have you ever killed a bearded hen? Yes. Ever killed a Jake? Yes. Ten minute successful hunt on a two-year-old or a four-hour long hunt with a clean miss on a four-year-old? Two-year-old. Favorite camo pattern? Bottomland. land. Wild turkey legs for dinner or for the dog? Dog. More or less than five strikers in your turkey vest? No strikers. State you killed your first turkey in? Tennessee. State you killed your last turkey in? Nebraska. Sit in the blind for four hours and squeeze the trigger, or run and gun for one hour and not shoot?
2: Sit in the blind and wait.
0: Rios or Osceola's? Osceola. Osceola's or Easterns? Eastern. Easterns or Merriam's? Eastern. Field turkeys or woods turkeys? Woods turkey. Shotgun scope, rifle sight, holographic sight, or beads? Bead. Rubber boots, leather boots, or snake boots? Rubber boots. Favorite place you've ever hunted? Tennessee. Most turkeys you've ever killed in a season? Fourteen. Least number of turkeys you've ever killed in a season? One. Out of all the states you've hunted, which state has the most uncooperative uncooperative turkeys?
2: West Tennessee.
0: If you only knew how to imitate one turkey sound to call turkeys, what would it be? Clucks. On a scale of one to ten, how good of a turkey caller do you think you are? Eight. Favorite turkey hunting book? Tom Turpin. Who taught you how to turkey hunt? My father. Think of the toughest turkey you've ever hunted. Did you ever kill him? No. Do you prefer long sharp spurs or long thick beards? Long spurs. Biggest mistake new turkey hunters make?
2: Not being patient.
0: How long does turkey season last in heaven and what is the bag limit?
2: No limit and unconditional time.
0: That was strong. I mean, smoking fast. So, Cameron, I got to go back and double check this Mark Prudom. <laughs> you don't
1: believe Mark was that good?
0: No, I I know Mark is that good, but I'm wondering if I left a question off with Mark. But Steve, I'm I'm checking the list here, so you hear me rattling the papers around, Steve, and I've got you at the second fastest time behind Mark. I've got you at two minutes and twenty six point four five seconds. And that that's with me messing up on the word uncooperative. So that's, <laughs> that's dang strong.
2: Well, you know, we, we live and breed turkeys every day of the year, so this is fun doing this kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, Steve, you. do you do you fall turkey hunt as well as spring? Well, I, I did. Tennessee's kind of neutered yeah, our areas I used yeah, to heavily fall. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've read Tom Turpin's book, Hunting the Wild Turkey, I think's the name of it, and his is mostly based on fall hunting and that's around that same area that you live in in Memphis. Right. So, they used to know, hunt. but it has changed. You you can't hunt them in those counties anymore in the fall. There's no season.
2: Even when I go up to middle Tennessee, the way they, they've got our season and bag limits and everything, they've just effectively neutered it. I mean, they went from killing yeah. two to 3,000 turkeys in the fall to killing less than a couple of hundred.
1: Yeah. Well, it's gobbler only, and, you know, it. that is going to knock a bunch of folks out. And I mean, the season's only, I think, one weekend in there, and you get about— 13 days to hunt so it's not like it's a very big season unless you can hunt with a bow
2: yeah and they they moved the season around to accommodate deer hunters so they put it back it really needs to be probably in november but they put it back in october and it can be hot then and um but you know they uh and, and then they were wondering why the participation in the fall had slacked off, and this was when they had, had moved it into December. And I thought, hmm, let's see. I got out of my truck on my lease. It was 11 degrees. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably the only idiot in the woods, you know, in the state hunting when it's that cold. And so I scattered a drove of turkeys. I called one back in, I killed it, and I left. I said, one's enough. And because it's so cold, when I got back to my truck, it was a balmy 12 degrees. So, you know, and they can't figure out why no participation so
1: yeah yeah then they moved it up to october and i agree with you i I, if it was me and i'll never get to set the laws but if it was me i would have it coincide with thanksgiving i just think that makes sense but you know hey that's just me
2: Thanksgiving, and it's the perfect time
1: you know i think that but, would be cool if you could go harvest your gobbler a week before thanksgiving and then you can brine him and have him fresh right there on the table
2: yeah i've done that many times and they are good fresh
1: oh yeah you can't beat that you can't beat that i've, I've been lucky to i fall hunt hard i really do and it's it's no spring you know it's it's a whole different ball game especially chasing old gobblers in the fall but i was just curious because I know. I, I, you're a really fun follow on Facebook for folks, by the way, especially in the in the groups that you're in. You post a lot of turkey history photos and things, and it's really neat to me.
2: Good, I'm glad you enjoy it. I I, I enjoy collecting those photos and um, kind of being a historian with my family and you know everything turkey hunting, which just my whole life revolves around that. So it is it is a sickness.
1: Yeah, it is. Got hold of a lot of us now, but. <sighs> It's pretty cool seeing history and, you know, the the Turpin name just is synonymous with turkey hunting in my mind because Tom Turpin with the call company and, and the book early on. I mean, he was one of the pioneers back in the day and the book's a great read if you can find a copy of it, you know, uh, to our listeners. There's a lot of reprints that you can find and you can get a, you know, pretty affordable chance at reading the book now A original copy is probably a little more expensive
2: (laughs) yeah if you can find it it is the rarest of all um turkey books and i don't know how many he printed but it may just been you know a couple of hundred i'm not really sure Mm -hmm. and then uh, um they used to not know there used to be a debate about what the second book ever written on turkey hunting was whether it was my uncle tom's or the simon everett book and i found I found an advertisement in 1927 Turpin book which predates the Everett book but the real breakthrough came when was when uh, I bought one of his well his first record that he did he was also a pioneer in game called records and i asked the um the guy i bought it from do you know anything about this record and, you know we're we know a lot about turkey history and and calls and things this guy knew everything that you ever wanted to know about a record and because of the recording process to do this type of record he said that had to have been done in late 1924 early 1925 well, when he said that i remembered. In the book that he Uncle Tom says that he uh, for some time has been wanting to do a record, one side turkey and one side duck to help the fellow sportsmen, and with any luck he'll have it out at the end of this hunting season. So that means the book predated the record. So we could we could actually date the book to about 1924, making it wow. the second book ever. Released.
0: Wow,
1: that is that's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. Who was the record guy. It wasn't Brent Rogers, was it? <laughs>
2: yeah. He would love to get he would love to get this record. Um, he just did get get a later version. I know that, that Tom did at least three different um turkey records and then my grandfather did a turkey record. And these these were seventy 70- eight Yeah, yeah, 78 RPM, and then uh, he started out having these first ones were recorded up in Chicago, went up there to to record them.
0: Wow, that's quite the undertaking to get to Chicago back in those days to record a record about turkey calling.
2: He was phenomenal on everything he did, so even little subtle changes— In call designs, woods, he would consult the the finest, like in duck calls, the finest callers in the country and go to different regions just to to tape record, or however they did it, record the various um, sounds that they were calling in the different regions for ducks. So um, he, he would travel and that's where he would get a lot of his exotic woods going up to like Chicago, places that were, you know, where you couldn't get it here. Yeah. But, but. But any kind of little subtle change in a call design—I mean, he tried it woods, every everything. I mean, was, you know, basically left no stone unturned. That's
0: that's fascinating. I mean, that's just you know, you think about what it takes to learn call making today, and you know, just to learn it, the opportunities are much greater today and really all around us with the internet the, you you know having youtube to refer to with the forums just you know so easy to communicate with other call makers and and you know go visit them jump in your car and drive on the interstate to go visit and spend a weekend with a call maker and and pick up you know some different tips and tricks and things mm-hmm. like that but what went into it back in those days And the (laughs) effort—I mean, that's that's just uh, all for turkeys and ducks.
2: Yeah, and and, you know he was—he his calls were the the very best obtainable. And I'm not just saying it because it's family, but they were really good calls and and everything he did. So it it wasn't just—he wasn't defined by duck calls or turkey calls. I mean, he made he had crow calls, and you know they were they were the best obtainable. And just spent hours and hours and hours, you know, trying to perfect. And and in every little detail, and uh, and he was very generous with. Um, if you look at some of the old magazine, he was also a prolific writer. Um, I, he wrote I, offhand; I can't remember how many, but you know, probably at least a dozen articles on turkey hunting dating back to the earliest one was 1916. And but a lot of times he'll have calls drawn out in there and give the dimensions and say, "Hey, this is how you make make the call," and Trying to to help his fellow sportsmen is is how he would put it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So
2: very very generous with with a, a lot of the stuff that he put into
0: print and and helping people out. Yeah, no doubt.
2: But it's just I tell people I want people to kill turkeys, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, we definitely get that. And you know, in your in your own right, you've spent a lot of time digging into the family history on the calls and you know like you said get your hand on a record you know getting your hand on different things to to really dig into the family history of the at least the family history of the call making part for you and so I know that's a lot of work and a lot of effort and you know will the a lot of money part I believe is a given but it probably does need to be said because I don't think, you know, There, there's a lot of people, I think, that are probably listening to this who don't collect and don't understand what a lot of these old turkey hunting, turkey calling, turkey calls, all this stuff is is really kind of bringing out in the market these days. And so, you know, that there is a market for it. So, you know, you put forth a lot of effort in that and that's that's to be commended as well.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I can't, I can't get everything, can't afford everything. And there's a lot deeper pockets than, than, but you know, than I have, but I try to pick up, you know, what I can, when I can. And, um, and if it's anything I can copy, you know, any kind of written material or whatever, I I at least try to get the person to let me get a copy of it. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I've been, I've been studying and researching and questioning You know, when my dad was alive and, um, uh, Tom had an apprentice that I got a lot of information from him. He was like an uncle to me. Was had been a friend of the family all through the uh, you know all my life, and um, he was actually um, hunting with my grandfather Enman, Tom's younger brother, and uh, was with him when he had his fatal heart attack on. Centennial Island on the Mississippi River in 1959. Wow, that was wild so, turkey that, hunting, right? Oh yeah, yeah, they were turkey hunting and got got the boat in there. And, and you know, he had a, he had been complaining about this, as he put it, devilish indigestion, having heart problems. Didn't know it, you know. But he once they got over on the island, he he had a massive heart attack, and that was he could have been on the operating table with the finest surgeons of the day they wouldn't have been able to save him mm. so but you know we were talking about there was a 21 year difference in tom and enman's age that's where it's more like I'm a 4th generation call maker because of that that difference but they made the calls together for for years and years and um, and then they in the 50 you know tom had gotten pretty old and enman was making them under Tom's name, and they really, they sold the Tom Turpin name rights for turkey calls to help pay for Tom's nursing home care. He was in a nursing home for like the last 18 months of his life. You know how expensive nursing homes are, so what they did, Emman kind of stepped aside even though it was really would would have been considered jointly owned uh, so his brother would have the care. And so they sold the name rights to Tom Turpin for turkey calls to Roger Latham, and then Latham eventually sold to Frank Piper, and that became Penn's Wood. So um, uh, a lot of history there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And
2: they, and a lot of people get confused. They, they continue to produce a, a version of the Tom Turpin Yelper, I mean, all the way up into the nineties. And, uh, I get people all the time it's like, yeah, I bought, I bought a call from your great uncle in 1979. And uh, yeah, it's a Woods, you know, but, but they were, they were nice little calls. It just, they weren't as close, to, uh, true to the original as like what we make.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so what is a, turpin style call why what does turpin style part of that mean
2: okay so it's a it's a rounded box the The hole is mortised out and there is no spring in the lid so there's a lot of play in in that lid mm-hmm. and the trick style box you have to tilt the lid in towards the box and keep it in that tilted position as you call. And um, you know, if you try to hold it, you know, straight across like a like a a lynch, yeah. It's gonna sound place is you've got you've got to do this you know it, it's just got it's got a real great sound that style i'm not just saying ours but if it's you know even some of these other call makers if it's tuned up right that particular style it just the sound resonates and, and like if you listen to a cost style or a lynch style they're good calls but they're going to have kind of a thin tone compared to what our boxes will do
0: yeah They've got a, a very throaty and nasally. Sound yeah, a lot,
1: a, yes. a lot of rat. A lot of A lot of. You got one handy, Andy.
0: I do. Yeah, but...
1: and
2: uh, and actually, <laughs> th- this is a this this is a Tom Turpin that I just bought just a couple of days ago. Oh. Now this call is about eighty years old. Wow. And so, um, and and I've done nothing. I ain't. I haven't even chalked it just how, how I got it, but.
1: Hey guys, so at this point, Steve played this 80-year-old Turpin box call, but the phone quality was not adequate for this call, in my opinion, so I had Steve submit some audio files of him actually playing the call outside with a good recording device, so I'm going to insert his box call playing now, and also his trumpet call playing at this point so you'll hear the audio of both of these calls being played and then we'll pick back up in the interview an 80 year old call dang i don't think the audio is going to do that justice but i could hear it
0: (laughs) yeah Yeah,
2: it's it's kind of hard up close to the phone and everything Yeah, but but man uh, 80 years old
0: that might be the only turpin call i've ever heard run so
1: like literally i i
2: I went to unicoy and i took i did a seminar down there on the history and i took i took some old calls and, and people were coming up and i let them them and run them after the um, uh, after the talk, and they're like, my my goodness, these things still call. And that's the funny thing, unless they've been messed with over the years, you know, because sometimes you get owners who think they know how to tune a call, and they'll take a pocket knife to a tone board, or you know, just make you cringe. But if they haven't been messed with, and they're not slick from 80 to a hundred years of use, they're still pretty dang good calls. I mean, consistently. And, and, um, I mean, when I went and bought this one and I looked at it and I said, yeah, it's a time And as soon as I called on it, I was like, oh, that
0: it's awesome. <laughs> so I've got a, a friend who just picked up a, uh, Lynch style box call or a Lynch box call from, The 306 Edgewood Boulevard, Birmingham, Mm -hmm. and it's signed, and he sent me a picture of the inside of the call, and that thing is so built up with box call chalk on the inside that, you know, it's just one of those calls you just want to ask it. Where all have you been and how many turkeys have you seen die cuz you know that call has been in the woods and has been run and and it's been loved and abused as well over the years and yes, so there
2: uh, there are so many of us that that you know we've always talked about this call could just talk you know mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you'll get a call and it's got, you know, 15 notches on it, you know, and that's, that's extra cool when you see that. And it's like, wait, you know, just love to know the history where all this call's been and um, really neat stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's cool. And so you told us when we got you on and we were chit chatting on the phone tonight, you told us that you started in the, in the call making business working for your dad as a tuner. Correct. So, About how old were you when you started that job and what, I guess, a bunch of questions related to it. But go ahead and answer that one, and then I'll I'll bombard you with the rest of them.
2: (laughs) I was about 12. Okay. uh, Roughly 12. Because I I would stay out of his way, and how that happened was I went out into our shop, and he was inside in the den, and I started putting lids on boxcalls. And I hit one, and I thought, that's good. And so I took it in, and he goes, hey, that's not bad. So he started adjusting it. Then he ended up putting it back where it was, and I think a little light bulb went off like, hey, he's got potential. And see, I, I've kind of got an advantage to, I was a musician all the way up through college, so I've got right. the musician's ear and can hear what it's supposed to sound like and I know I was working in a sporting goods store one time, and a guy came in to buy a box call, and I explained he, he couldn't afford one of mine. I said that's fine, you know. There's a lot of these good mass-produced calls. I'll get you set up on something, mm-hmm. but you've got to run them because they're not all created the same, and they're all over the board. And so I, there's a brand I I kind of liked, and and so I took the first one out, and it was okay. The second call was terrible. It's flat. It just bad and then the third one was really a good call and I said now this is a perfect example so you hear the difference between this call and the last one and this poor man looked at me and said they sound exactly the same to me he was tone yeah. deaf and so I was like trust me get this one you know yeah. and, but they, you know a lot of people can't hear and, and it. but anyway I always had a musical ear so I was you know I I tuned calls for a long time
0: yeah that's a job I would stink at one of the many <laughs> It well, it's a
2: it's a man. There goes a lot into tuning box calls. I mean, you you know, and it's it's mainly um, the main part is you've got to have a lot more lids than you do boxes because yeah. it's it's really how those two individual pieces of wood made up. And so, like, if you're a call maker and you make one box and one lid, yeah, you might get lucky, but you need a you know a multitude to go. And I may go through ten or twelve lids before I find one that, that I, I like this sound and it's good on both sides. And then I can fine tune it from there. Yeah. So a lot goes into it.
1: You do, I mean, you do more than just box calls. You have, you know, suction type turpin style yelpers or, you know, I guess trumpet calls as many call them, but you make those as well.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, my uncle Tom invented the, basically the modern trumpet call. That's what I was uh, saying. All these modern trumpets are really a copy of the families. You know, the, the internals may be different or the, the outside may be a little different look, but it's based off of that. And so he started out with wing bones and Jordan style cane yelpers. Yeah. But the, the problem was the way God creates a wing bone or a piece of cane the holes are all different sizes, mm-hmm. so you weren't getting that consistent sound. So what he did, he figured out to, to turn a piece of wood, and if you drill it to spec, you're going to get a consistent sound that you want to get out of that call. And so basically, it's it's the same principle as a wing bone or a cane call, but it's I say it's a wing bone of controlled dimension.
0: Yeah,
1: and so yeah. it's I mean it's wood, right? You're using wood as yeah. like the bell and everything. Yep. Okay.
2: I've done some metal ones, but but you know just playing around trying to, and some some synthetic, um you know some people turn them out of acrylic now, and you know just you know everybody's trying to get the best sound, but but a wood a wood trumpet is is a good call, and we kill a lot of turkeys with them both spring and fall.
0: Yeah, yeah. So a matter of
2: fact, are... if I if if I had to choose one call of anything made. It would be a Yelper because it, it's a it's a unique sound. Turkeys like it. Uh, it's not affected by weather. It'd be pouring down rain, and you, know, you to actually probably would even sound better. And But that's, that's what I would choose.
0: Why do you say it would probably sound better?
2: Well, there's something about when you get a little bit more moisture into, like, the mouthpiece area, not flooded out, but, mm-hmm. um, like, if you're calling on a Yelper and your mouth kind of gets kind of dry, if you'll put your hung up there and just let a little liquid get in there and then you'll start calling better hmm. it'll, it'll res- resonate better through the call good tip. like like just a little bit of moisture you know huh.
0: so you're telling me there's hope for me yet on a trumpet uh,
2: look i i have had <laughs> yes anybody can learn this it's it's not you know who the hardest person to teach is adult, yeah because they come in with a preconceived idea. I, if you could see at my booth at a show how many eight to ten year old kids we've had come up there and within five minutes of instruction had them calling well enough to call a turkey in. Now they're not perfect but they've got a good start on it and call well enough to call a turkey in after just because they listen and they they you know we do this, do this and they do it without any kind of preconceived notions that it's difficult or or whatever. I can also give you some other tips on on calling on them too.
0: I'm all ears.
2: So, well, you know, a lot has to do with your your mouthpiece and uh, the lip stopper is going to give you consistency. So when you, when I put that mouthpiece in between my lips, your lips actually create a seal over the tip of the mouthpiece. I can run my tongue on the inside of my lips. I will not be able to feel the mouthpiece. You have that seal. So when you're, uh, for lack of a better word, smacking in, the natural vibration of your lips is what's creates sound through the call. That's that's your li- your lips are basically becoming a reed, mm-hmm. and, th- and then also your hand positioning is very important. You know, I have people pick up the call in the middle of the call, one hand and call. And it, it you know, it'll sound okay. It would call a turkey in, but it's not the sound you want. And so you really need to cup the end of the call and close your hands up and, and kind of creates a funnel over the call. So as you open your hand up, as you're going up to scale it 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 really sounds good yeah and so that that's you know little things like that you'll find one position in your mouth that typically you'll call from all the time some areas may tickle your lips or some areas you may not have trouble getting a sound out of but one area and so once you figure that out you'll you'll go to that I don't even think about it just go straight to that that one spot And then your lip stopper, you know, moving it up or down to where it is a good fit in your lips and and feels good and you're calling the bet. And then another thing I tell people, this is a call that you really do well to practice all during the year. And I'm not saying, you know, you got to practice an hour a day, five minutes a day all through the year or 15 minutes minimum a week, be a pretty good caller. You know, I've had people that, were customers that got the call that, that struggled with it to, to start with, and they stuck with it, and they're, I put them up against anybody in the country now, dang good callers. Mm-hmm. But And then another thing is I would have customers say, the more I practice, the worse I get. Well, I know what that is. Being a musician, we call that building your chops, and so their lips are getting fatigued. So if you're practicing and you start getting worse, put the call down. Pick it up the next day. It's not going to get any better because your lips are tired. You haven't you got lip muscles just like anything else. You've got to build that up.
0: Yeah. Just little things like that. Yeah, that makes total sense. You know, I mean, that's, I think that that last piece of advice goes for pretty much everything, you know. And and we're all going to have good days and bad days at even what we're the best at, you know. So, I mean, Michael Jordan had bad days on the basketball court, but you don't stop because of that. You just know tomorrow is going to be different
2: and then you know it's funny i've had i've had customers say man i was sounding real good on your yelper last year when i got it out of the drawer this year well you've answered my question right there yeah <laughs> if i went as a musician if i went eight months without playing my horn i'd be
0: terrible yeah
2: you know <laughs> so and they're
0: and they're little musical instruments that is exactly mm. right That's exactly right
1: so i actually have a goal of trying to i want to kill a turkey or maybe not even kill i want to call a turkey up within gun range this year with a trumpet type call i have a few okay. i have some cane ones, some wing bones so i've been practicing some but i guess i fall in that camp of i'm not like when i put it in my mouth one day i don't know if it's gonna sound like the sweetest you know hen on earth or if it's just gonna be a total disaster i mean i'm so inconsistent i guess so practice i guess is key to that to get that consistency
2: That, that, that with, with practice i mean i um i pretty much practice at least just picking up a call and calling for you know 30 seconds to a minute all during the year you know just even back when i was in college i remember a group of us went to a restaurant after a football game and this girl jumped in the booth and she said quick who everybody who am i is she picked up a straw and acted like she was sucking on the straw because i notorious for going in restaurants and cutting straws down and I'm yelping.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Ma- matter of fact, I, I went, we went to, uh, my brother and I went to Panama City Beach a number of years ago to go fishing and we stopped at a Waffle House. And this is a funny story. But the place was packed and we saw a truck there and had all these turkey hunting NWTF stickers. And my brother's like, I, I wonder who he is. And I said, I'll find him. And so we walked in, in the restaurant and <laughs> packed we went down to the far end one booth open at the end and i cut a straw in half and i said watch this and i started yelping on it and i looked and his head popped up at the far end and the guy came up there and said were you making turkey i said yeah i knew you were here we just had to find you And we had a good laugh about it and he ended up buying a call from me but you know we're, we're a strange breed but
0: there's no doubt about that no doubt about that and you know cameron i have the same issue when I'm running a trumpet. You know, if I'm sitting down to a bird, I don't know if the first sound that comes out of that trumpet's going to sound like a frog farting or a turkey. And one thing that I learned from reading Larry Prophet's book was that he would mouth. You know, he talks about that bonk and he said, mm-hmm. you know, he would mouth. That call on you know with the trumpet to his lips before he ever drew any air through the trumpet, and I found that you know just doing that, I'm more consistent that first series of yelps with the trumpet than I am just picking it up and trying to play it. Mm -hmm. But that and you don't
2: have to be perfect, right? I've I've heard I've heard people that were you know on the lower end of of um, proficiency and call turkeys in and kill them you know you got that right rhythm you're not doing any sharp notes like a putt and and um knowing when to call and when
1: to to shut up
0: yeah and that shut up part's critical isn't it (laughs) it is
1: (laughs) yeah it's hard to do when he's you know gobbling back at you every five seconds because i just freaking love hearing them but you can't eat the gobble that's what my mentor always said well well it's like um uh, I think it was Mike Batty said this, get
2: their feet moving, not their beat." And a lot of truth to that, you know. Yeah. And it's it's hard, but, I mean, I'm a big advocate of, you know, when they when they answer me hard once or twice, I'll go quiet on them. Mm-hmm. And just the way I was taught, I mean, it's 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 very effective. You don't kill them all like that, but um, but it's
1: better than average. Yeah. You know? Cameron,
0: if you want to get good at practicing that, just come on and hunt some more in Alabama. Where the turkeys don't gobble.
1: Yeah, that's the good thing about Alabama turkeys. You don't have to worry about them gobbling back. You know, that part of the plan never happens.
0: Right. If you can get one to gobble at you once, just go ahead and put your call down and get on your gun. Because he's not going to gobble yeah, again. <laughs> he's done. And
1: it'll slip up behind you and, and <laughs> then run off.
0: <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah. Yeah. There's some truth to that. A typically,
1: so. Eastern wild gobbler for you. But yeah, that is... That's all really fascinating. Do you have an original, like, do you have a lot of Turpin family history as such as, like, do you have an original copy of the book?
2: Oh, I do. And oh, right. um, I've, got, I've got the original book. I've got a number of original calls. I'm actually working on, and this has been a long, long, long project, but um, I'm working on a book about the Turpin uh, family history. Nice. And uh, so it'll have you know, I want to have the original book in it, along with all his known uh, magazine articles. You know, pictures of you know uh, the family hunting pictures, pictures of calls. You know, I mean, it's going to be a good book. It's just very going to be very detailed, and yeah. uh, it, it's it's uh, a it's a booger trying to get all this um, you know worked out to get it done. But kind of seeing the light of the you know into the tunnel, so it's. Uh, Hopefully, I'll have this out in the next year to two years.
1: Oh, that's yeah, cool. that, that sounds really neat. I mean, when like that book was written, there weren't many turkey hunters, right? I mean, it was like a very select few were out fall turkey hunting. It did sound like, from when I read the book, that turkeys were actually pretty plentiful. That, that was a low uh,
2: ebb. In, that was a low ebb in the turkey population. So, and that's one reason why. Uh, Uncle Tom turned to banking duck calls and made tons of duck calls, tons of crow calls. But there were, you know, tons of duck hunters. But you had to be uh, like in Tennessee. The only turkeys were really found in these dangerous, remote river bottoms up and down the Mississippi River, yeah. or in the mountain mountains of East Tennessee. And this deal of going back into some farmer's field and hunting is wood. There were no turkeys like that even when i first started I, I was not allowed to turkey hunt until i was 15 years old and the reason oh. was we you, you had to go into these remote river bottoms and they were dangerous my grandfather had died on a turkey hunt like that so my dad felt you needed to be a more mature age so 15 was the designated age and it was good a good rule for the time but to show you the difference of how it was back then the <laughs> first year I killed a turkey, they killed less than 700 turkeys for the entire state of Tennessee.
0: Wow. In
2: 2020, the year of COVID, everybody was hunting, but they set an all-time record. It was 40,100 and something. It's just Mm -hmm. too too extreme. So we got back to the check-in station, and people were running across the the check-in area to come look at the turkey.
1: That's how big a deal it was.
0: Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah,
1: and you know, it's, you know, but it's interesting to me that like those river bottom turkeys were the OGs. You know, they were the ones that survived, and now they're the ones that seem to be the least plentiful on the landscape.
2: Yeah, and some of that is the timber management. Yeah, you know,
1: they they had a
2: deal like where I killed my first turkey. They had a deal. Uh, they had a game warden there that was having. Back in the, the late 80s, early 90s, they were killing upwards of 50 turkeys uh, a season out of there, and then you see it go to 40, 30, 20, 18. I killed one of the 18 that year, and they should have they should have closed it. They had it one more year. They killed one turkey, mm. and and then they're like, oh, we need to close it. Well, see, they were still having massive amounts of draw hunts in there. Too many really for, for, that that place could support. You know, when they get 125, a draw hunt, have three hunts and then an open hunt at the end and do that in conjunction with high water years where you get a bad hatch yeah. and a couple, couple of years in a row like that. And so they had to restock that, that that bottom land just to get the turkeys back in there. And then they closed it for, for um, three years and uh, to build the population back up. Mm. But, you know. And I wonder, uh, you know, as far as the, the areas that are suffering from turkeys, you know, we, I wonder why they stopped the tried and true method of trapping and relocating. You don't, you don't see that anymore. And that's when they were doing that was just when we had turkeys. So yeah. you would think they would go back to that, that method in some of these hard hit areas and then close it for a number of years to let them, but they don't, uh, you know, they'd rather yeah. monkey around with season dates. So,
0: yeah. And yeah. I, I wonder. How much of their thought process is going towards, well, when they were restocked, did they exceed the carrying capacity of the land? And now it's just getting back to what the land can carry. And And that's quite possible. Yeah, and if if that's the case, then we're all just going to have to, all of us who have been turkey hunting for a while are going to have to get used to the fact that, well this is what we're going to have. You know, we're going to have some bad years because we had bad hatches two years prior, and we're going to have some good years because we had good hit a good hatch two years prior. But, right. you know, I, I think uh, I'm hearing that mentioned a good bit, you know, about, well, this is, you know, we, we think this is just the carrying capacity for the land. But still, you know, that carrying capacity can be increased if we could, get rid of some predators and improve the habitat that we have, you know, Absolutely. By making, making better pulp habitat, better nesting habitat and, you know, doing some burns and things like that for those of us who can do that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's, uh, I I don't disagree with what you said about the, the trapping and relocating. I think that there seems to be a, a little bit of a mindset that, well, we did it. We brought the turkeys back, and we're done. I don't know. Are we ever really done with it? Yeah, I
2: mean, you know, I'm kind of under the the theory if it's not broke, don't try to fix it. You know, I mean, it's um, it, you know, I mean, it it's it, it, it's a tried and true method. Yeah. Now, what what I'm just I'm curious of y'all's opinion on this. What what do you think about pushing the season dates back in the theory to? allow all the gobblers to breed the hens.
1: Cameron, uh-huh. you go first. I was all for it in theory because I had heard several people talk about it and it sounded like it was a possible solution. And I was very pro move the season back. I totally was. After seeing the data and I have seen it personally what the pulp production was with the study that tennessee just concluded uh-huh. in these counties where they did the delay and the adjacent counties were not delayed it doesn't look like it did anything so well and here, I, here's I, my i don't know how you could study it better than the way we did it you know <laughs> i don't know what else you could do <laughs>
2: Well, that that that's a that's perfect thing, but but in my mind, what they should have been looking at is the state of Arkansas. That should be your poster child for this method. They have pushed the season back for twenty to twenty five years and in this same theory and it has not increased their population at all over there. And they've been they it's yeah. been ongoing. I mean that's you want their poster child? That's you know, look right here
1: and um, Missouri as so, well. I mean, Missouri's experiencing yeah. a decline, and they don't start till I think April twenty one or so every year. And I mean, they're very yeah conservative i think one bird the first 10 days and then they get another week where they can get a second bird yeah and they haven't so. had it it doesn't seem like the season framework at least in my mind and again i'm down to try anything i think we will have some indirect benefits with the delayed season in tennessee this year such as less non-resident pressure on the front end probably less non-resident pressure overall because less people will be inclined to hunt here Memorial Day weekend when it's 90 degrees then would uh-huh. you know come down from Kentucky to hunt 2 weeks early how it was so I think we will see some indirect potential benefits such as that but I mean just looking at the data of literal pulse produced by hens are is delaying 2 weeks going to help us produce more pulse by allowing more breeding. The Tennessee study they did showed that that, that doesn't seem to be the case. Anyway, right. But... I was, so just, I, I was just curious. I, if y'all was I'm down to try there. anything, you know. <laughs> i I just want more. We all
2: We all want. We all want, <laughs> we all want as many turkeys as you know we can and hear them gobbling and you know. Um, but so.
1: you know, we'll see what happens. You know, they. Uh, I will give the commissioners who changed the season. You know, I'm sure they've caught a ton of flack for this, but I watched it. They moved the season back because they had not been given the study data why i do not know because it was done they should have had all that data in front of them but they didn't get it and i mean i remember bill cox the commissioner bill cox literally saying well we don't have it let's take basically let's take the conservative route here and assume it works the population's declining you know significantly so they pushed it back then the next amendment was made it to where they can change the laws every year rather than two years so that when the study data came out they can revert back to the old season starting next year if the study shows what it did so if they are true to their word the season dates will move back to the way they were after this year
2: yeah we'll yeah. just have to wait and see <laughs> yeah
1: uh, big. Yeah. Up. But that was the concept that was pitched at the commission meeting and i I was like, hey, you know what? I'm in on that. Let's take the conservative route because we need to be that right now. And if they'll actually move it back the way it was after seeing the study data, then, you know, we we had one year where we started a little late. But, uh, you know, and we only kill two birds now anyway. So if you can't kill one from April 15th to June 1st, basically, then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, i tell you
2: what, it's going to be, anybody that hadn't killed one, past let's say may 15 it's going to get brutal because it's going to be greened up and hot and
1: yeah i don't um, think there'll be many hunters in the woods i mean i do think that the harvest will decline some this year it's bound to yeah
2: yeah Yeah. it will but um but good news is i've been seeing uh, a lot of turkeys on my trail cams at my lease so
1: yeah, I uh, think we, we, I think we got a good hatch. I mean, like Andy said, two years ago, I think yeah. most all of the United States seemed to have a big hatch two years ago, and so I, I think this year could be just a great spring all around for turkey hunters in in yeah. many different states. I can see, I can see
2: that. Yeah,
1: yeah. What do you think, Andy? Or did I sum it up pretty good?
0: Well, you know, I'll I'll say this, you know, and just Cameron, I, I'm I'm with you on what you said to start. Your statement off in that you know the science is pretty convincing and it logically it makes sense if you push the season back the start of the season back and the vast majority of your toms are killed the first two weeks of the season you've had more toms in the woods to breed more hens over that period of time now that's logically where everything stops because from that point on That doesn't mean that those hens are not going to go be sitting on a nest and get killed on that nest by a bobcat or a coyote or get flushed off that nest by a hunter walking through the woods or they have a raccoon come in and destroy the nest or a possum or something like that. So just because there's more hens getting bred doesn't necessarily mean we're going to end up with more birds on the landscape. You know, yeah. I I think that really, you know, this problem that we have of a declining population, and we've been hearing everyone say this for a lot of years, and I can't, I can't punch a hole in it in any shape, form, or fashion. It's not one problem. It's yeah. a combination of problems. And Agreed. I don't think we're going to fix it by trying to fix one part of it. We're going to have to to make this a multi-pronged approach to try to fix the problem. And if one of those parts of the solution is pushing the season start date back and that one little part of the solution works in tandem with the other parts, whatever the experts say that happens to be, whether that's reducing the bag limit, maybe, you know, some people are saying offer a bounty on nest predators, you know, whatever I'm not saying do that or don't do that. I'm saying whatever the experts say it should be, let's put this puzzle together and give it two, three, five years and see if it actually works.
1: Yeah, but, you I know, guess the, to me, have has anyone found that hens aren't being bred, like that that's part of the issue? Because yeah. I mean, obviously the nest success is horrible, but yeah. like, is it because they weren't fertilized by a gobbler or was it because a coon ran up and ate all the eggs you know like
0: well i don't know that you know necessarily there's that kind of data out there i'm i'm sure there is somewhere but i don't know what it is but you know that's again it's part of it and from you know what i'm hearing is that the time period that the hens are being bred has been spread out yeah Whereas, and
1: then, like, Mike Chamberlain said that, where it should be a big cluster of nests hitting all at once.
0: Exactly. And, you know, and and he says this, and it makes total sense. If you have 100 nests on the ground at one time, it's going to be really hard for predators to eat all those nests. Yeah. Kill all those eggs. But if you had 10 nests on the ground at one time over a period of two months, well, now it's a lot easier for those predators to get all of those nests and it's a lot easier for the predators to pick off your poults at that point, you know, because now you've got one to two or one day old to two week old poults who can't fly over a 60 day period of time. And you can feed a lot of bobcats and hawks and owls, a lot of poults over 60 days, but you can't feed them all over a two week period of time if all the nests are hatching, you know, and theoretically uh, we know that doesn't happen but all the nester hatching on one day that would be ideal but obviously yeah. even mother nature is not going to let that happen so
1: yeah so the tennessee study i pulled this up as far as that's concerned with incubation dates you know are those actually being delayed or do they start early you would think if hunting is delayed two weeks sorry steve you really opened a, a <laughs> <laughs> are you still there? Yeah, we know yeah, you're I'm just, I'm taking it all in. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Steve. Andy and I are gonna talk <laughs> just, I, I'm very passionate about all this kind of talk, but the uh, oh, yeah. you know the data the two week delay, which they did in three counties in south central Tennessee and some counties in western Tennessee. You would think incubation would begin earlier when hunting wasn't started for two weeks. You know, the delayed hunting season would help incubation begin earlier, right? But at Giles, Lawrence, and Wayne County, the median incubation date was April 26th. In Bradford and Maury County, which borders those counties and opened with the regular turkey season, median incubation date was April 25th. So it was one day different, you know? and 2018 26th and 26th 2020 2020 the delay counties did start earlier april 24th and april 29th in bradford and or bedford and Mari. but i mean they were almost identical across the board i guess what i'm saying you know so it it definitely didn't move up the timeline of hey these hens got bred earlier they were undisturbed from hunting and the hens hit the nest you know 15 days earlier than the hunted population, which is kind of what I was hoping would be the case. Cause I mean, heck this would be a great solve. If this was what solved it, I'm in, you know?
2: Well, I wonder, I wonder how late that they actually will breed or re nest. So I went to a um, Turkey Federation banquet up in Nashville, a number of years back and stayed with a friend. And I said, Hey, let's get up and, ride around and look at the turkey droves that were actually in in town and so we 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 drove around we saw uh, two or three droves and the the pults were almost as big as some other hen you could still pick her out and then we drove up on one hen and and she i said look and there were poles that were – they weren't as big as banty roosters. Yeah. And, I mean, little, little bitty things. I'm like, my – and they were running through the undergrowth and everything. This was in September. Wow. So, you know, it's the latest I've ever seen. But that may account for, you know, we we all see turkeys, you know, sometimes they call them super jakes. But, you know, late hatch two-year-old or, mm-hmm. or early hatch jake where you don't really you – know, it could be either one or um, – yeah. but that just – that was an eye opener for me that, I mean, it was, it was actually in September and you had polts that small that were
0: out there. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's a rarity, you know, to, to listen to Mike Chamberlain speak. It, I heard him at the Alabama state NWTF field day that they had this past August. And he said that what they're seeing with poults is that one of the biggest issues for poults that are born from a later, from a renest nest is that poults don't have a way to regulate their body temperature. And, you know, for years I used to equate that with Well, it's cold. You know, if it gets real cold, that'll kill them. But mama can produce a lot of body heat. And so what he's saying is that it's heat, it's the sunshine, you know, these hot summer days when it's 90, 95 degrees that is killing a lot of poles, you know. Can't cool down. Yeah, they can't, their body temperature does not cool down and they just basically cook. And, you know, to me, that's, that's pretty fascinating. And then I heard him on the Wild Turkey Science podcast, and he said, you know, the other part of that equation too is that as the temperature gets hotter, these areas that typically would be ideal poult habitat and have a lot of bugs that would give them a lot of good protein so that they can molt and get to where they can fly sooner, the, the bug population is not as high. Once the temperature gets real hot because the grass that they're, the bugs are feeding on or are living in is not as lush and green and vibrant because the rainfall has slowed down and the heat has picked up as well. So, you know, they've got a couple of things going against them there and, you know, the longer they're on the ground, the more susceptible they are to predators. So I I thought that was all pretty interesting and, you know, I, I don't know how... We, as hunters, if it's even possible, how we move up the incubation date, but, you know, I've heard people say for years, well, you can move the rut when they're talking about deer, but I'm going to tell you, we tried to do that for years on a piece of property in, that we leased in South Alabama, and and I won't say it on this show, but if somebody ever wants to ask me where I'm not being recorded how many deer we killed off of a 1,000 acres over 30 years and we never moved the rut they I, I don't know that it can be moved but you know so i don't know how do we move the how do we move the pinky incubation period for a nest you know for turkeys so i I don't have a
2: clue. Well, yeah, they've talked about, and I've gotten in debates with people about it, you know, because I, I made the statement that, you know, uh, warmer days and, 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 and sunshine, and and this other guy was saying how it was controlled by the, the the light. But, you know, you take the start of the Tennessee season. If it's cold, they're, they're generally still bunched up at, at the first yeah. of the mm-hmm. season. Yeah. If it's been warm a few years ago, it was I mean, it warmed up in February and I mean it was they were rocking and rolling by the time the season opened. So yeah. wonder well, is it plays a key factor in that, you know, if it gets warmer sooner and, and everything, they're they're gonna they're gonna get a little jump on it. But that's the only thing I can see.
0: Yeah. And you know, I asked I asked a question similar to that of Mike Chamberlain and he said, Well, you know, you've got to take into account The body health of hens because they are not going to be ready to breed until they're physically ready to lay eggs and have that, you know, that physical toll taken on their, their, the state of their health, their body health. And so, you know, if we have a late cold spell, well, now they're expending more energy just trying to keep warm and stay alive. Like, You know, last year we had a a real late cold spell down in the south, and I think our birds were later getting started than normal, but, and I, and I recall that year you're talking about, you know, a couple of years ago when they were opening weekend, they were, here in Alabama, they were rolling, but yeah,
2: same, same Mississippi, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I do know that that has, a, you know, has something to do with it. So, you know, do we, at this stage, do we say, well, maybe climate change is a good thing because we'll, <laughs> we'll have hens breeding earlier, but you know, is that what's causing the spread in nesting from, you know, a population of hens? you know that some of them are not as physically fit and ready to nest, be bred and to nest earlier than than others. You know, I I mean
2: I think the uh, I think that would be the younger hens. You know, their their first year first cycle where they're going to be laying would be the ones that are not physically ready until a little bit later in the season.
0: Yeah. Yeah, could be. So they've
2: never gone through the laying cycle, you know. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And they're saying, you know, the the biologist I'm listening to are saying that you know, so many of their, uh, so many first year hens or jennies are not even attempting to nest. Yeah. In what they're seeing, and okay. the ones that are attempting to nest are extremely unsuccessful.
1: Yeah. They're they're not skilled at it yet, I guess. Yeah. So I don't know. I, hey, I hope it's as simple as we can delay it two weeks, and all of a sudden the turkey population booms. Yeah. I mean, hey. That'd be great. That sounds way easier than everybody having to go kill 100 raccoons and burn 15 times a year, you know. But I don't know that that's going to be it. I hope it is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh,
1: I'm, well, I'm going to actually
2: take some traps with me when, when I hunt up there in Middle Tennessee the first week of the season. I'm on turkey hunting trap. Good. That's the best time because we, we can do these,
1: kill these raccoons and stuff now year round yeah mm-hmm. huge huge win there i think i mean i i think if you if you're killing coons the first week of turkey season you are hitting them at, i mean you're really doing something then i think yeah. and i've been after them all year i don't anytime i have time i go get them i mean I, I crossed the 200 mark yesterday actually so that was a goal of mine and it's getting really hard to catch a coon on our properties <laughs> It's getting hard.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Steve, we got you on here to talk <laughs> turkey calls and right. a little bit of the history of of your family yeah, he, and and all he that. He started and, it. I know, I know. You you asked one question off topic and here we are 30 minutes later <laughs> being armchair biologists. <laughs> I love it though.
2: Know, so.
0: Well, it's you know, it's something that I know all of us are listening to this, everybody listening to the show and all of us on the show right now are very passionate about, and we've all got our two cents and, you know, hopefully, hopefully the experts come up with something like Cameron said, and, you know, we get a good plan implemented and, you know, we can see these populations, the declines turn around across the, across the country because, you know, what states are not seeing it right now, I have a sneaking suspicion we'll be seeing it within the next 10 years
1: Oh yeah, I mean, it's already kansas nebraska oklahoma those those states you would have never thought would see what they're seeing now and you know they're already cutting stuff but that's just part of it and you know i don't think we'll ever get back to 2005 turkey hunting you know i truly don't but if we just stabilize at current levels and they don't go down anymore from right here we've got a great turkey population to hunt for the rest of our lives you know okay but the fear is if it keeps getting worse and we got to do something now to make sure it doesn't get worse and so in my mind if if it stays right where it is nationwide right now we're gonna be okay but if it gets worse than that then we're gonna have some problems
0: yeah yep good deal yeah right well steve thank you i i've enjoyed our talk and you know it's getting getting late almost past my bedtime but i've enjoyed this i'd love to for you to come back on and join us again sometime in the not too distant future but before we cut you loose and call it a night if someone wants to buy a call from you or if someone has some history or maybe has a uh old turpin call they want to see if you can help kind of age for them and and value it and that kind of thing how can they go about getting in touch with you to do those things
2: well i've i've, I've got a very active presence on facebook um so you can contact me through there the the Turpin custom game calls group on Facebook uh, you can go to my website it's got my information to email me or call me uh, that would be uh, turpincustomgamecalls.com. dot com and um, I'm you know you can always just uh, get hold of my number from either of these sites and and um, Give me a call uh, or or text me, and I'm uh, always willing to help.
0: That's awesome. Well, any of you guys listening, if you want a turkey call made from a fourth generation turkey call maker and a long line, deep, rich history of not just turkey hunters but people who are just impassioned with turkey hunting and wild turkeys in general, then do give Steve a call and support him. And you know, like I said, I you know he he loves this stuff as much as we do, if not more. And it's rare that we find somebody that loves it more than we do. So if you've got anything that, that you know, an old turpin call or anything like that, that you want to try to figure out what the situation, what the deal is with that call, I would imagine that'd be a great place to start, would be with Steve. So Yeah, I
2: enjoy, you know, like I said, I've I've refurbished some old ones that have gotten slick from use and identified, you know, calls and, some are copies, some are ours, but it's, uh, you know, it's all fascinating to to see that, that old stuff.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Cameron, do you have anything else for Steve before we let him get uh, on with his life?
1: Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate hearing about it. Sorry for the soapbox thing to end it, but, uh, you started it. So I don't feel too bad. about it.
2: So, and, and I'll get with you too. And, and, um, uh, we'll meet up sometime and I'll, I'll, help you some on, if you're having problems on, on the yelper a little bit
1: yeah um, i might have to make a little trip over to to your area i wouldn't mind seeing some of that uh historical items you have stowed away as well if you wouldn't mind sounds good All yeah right. we're gonna, we're gonna do Mr. that
0: seminar at, at unicoi I got to running my mouth in there talking to several of the call makers and let the time slip by me. So I missed, uh, Mr. Seminar, or missed seeing those calls that you brought. So maybe yeah, I can
2: on YouTube at some point. I think it's going to be up next month or April sometime. They're kind of releasing them, you know, every, you know,
0: week or two. Yeah. And, um, so,
2: but it was a, it was a good turnout. And, uh, uh that's a, that's a, always a great show so
0: it is it really is and everybody listening that's what you're missing out on when you don't come to Unicoi is is getting to rub elbows with guys like steve and pick their brains and buy their calls so make it a point next year everybody i expect the crowd to get bigger and bigger every year so well good deal
2: it's a great show and uh it's what the um not bad mounting them, but it's what the the Turkey Federation Convention show really used to have the feel of it's just a family oriented um
0: it's just it's a lot of fun. It is so Yeah, 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 no doubt. Well thank you again. We really appreciate it. And I hope you have a wonderful turkey season this year and travel safely around slaying some birds and let's stay in touch. I will and uh wish the same for y'all. Thank you. Thanks Thanks, Steve. Have a great night. Thank you. All right. Bye. Goodbye. Yeah. Great. Maybe that should be a lesson to us that when somebody asks a question like that of us, we just say, well, why don't you just refer back to episode number 431 for our feelings on it?
1: <laughs> so you mean when he said, what do y'all think about the two-week delay idea? Yeah. And, yeah. and it ended up in an hour of me and you talking, <laughs> and then it was like, oh, wait, Steve, are you still there?
0: <laughs> Heck of a nice guy, you know, he... <laughs> I don't, I, I really don't think he knew what he was getting himself into. What kind of can of worms he opened when he asked that one simple question.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as y'all noticed, so we're plugged in some sound files of Steve playing his Turpin calls. Uh, mm-hmm. on, the, on the interview, he played some of them, but as you all know, through a cell phone on a phone call, it just does not give anything justice so yeah we plugged in some some sound files of him actually playing the calls where he recorded it and we just put that in there so that y'all could actually hear him being played and that you know hearing an 80 year old tom turpin box call how hey i don't know where else you're hearing that in your ears but i'd say that's pretty pretty rare
0: yeah that's some cool stuff for sure
1: yeah so hope y'all enjoyed that i enjoyed talking to steve uh, he is a great follow on facebook You know, especially if you're in some of these turkey hunting groups on Facebook with him, he posts some very interesting historical pictures and and facts and things about turkey hunting. It's it's really nice to to see some of those. And I I really like the pictures, you know. Sometimes they'll be wearing like a a full bow tie and suit, you know, with a dead turkey. I just, I love that that's how people used to hunt. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot different than it is now.
0: Maybe I'll go to the thrift store this year and buy me a suit yeah there
1: you go. I'm, I'm gonna go full like safari mode yeah have a little helmet hat thing and ready to roll
0: get you a monocle
1: yes yeah teddy Roosevelt on them. very sophisticated <laughs> yeah well do you you know we could ramble on but do you have a favor of the week for us since this is such a long episode you want to give a favor and then we'll wrap it up
0: yeah let's do that so we have just a few days before the nwtf convention in nashville and if you guys have a, even a thought of going, if you're within a short drive of Nashville and you have a thought of going, load up and go. Support those vendors there. Support those guys who are in the turkey calling contest. Support those guys who are in the turkey call making contest. Support those people who are doing the seminars and just go and, you know, just support the people who helped to put this thing on. You know, this is a big deal, raises a lot of money for the NWTF, and there's a lot of benefit for us as turkey hunters to be there. There's going to be all kinds of new products that are going to be rolled out during this show, and it's just a great opportunity to, to get ahead of the curve on a lot of things. And, you know, you're going to you're gonna see a lot of big-name hunters out there, and you never know what kind of tips or tactics you might pick up and get an opportunity to talk to somebody like a Cus Strickland or Eddie Salter or... Preston Pittman, shoot, Will Primos, Jimmy Primos, you just don't ever know who you're going to bump into at a place like that and get a chance to to talk one-on-one with them. As those opportunities are very rare. So go go to Nashville, support the show, and if you see a bald-headed guy with a golf shirt on that says the Turkey Hunter podcast on one breast and the other breast says Andy, that's me. So Stop and say hello. I would love to shake your hand and thank you for listening to the show. And that's it. That was a long favor, yeah. but it's, a I think, a good hey, one.
1: Hey, great, great favor. Support the call makers, guys, especially yes. our, our custom call makers. A lot of the guys from last week's show will be there. I don't. I assume Steve Turpin will be there. I'm not sure. But go support the call makers. I think they're kind of in a different room this year. Mm-hmm. Make sure you go see them, play on their calls, talk to them, and maybe buy a couple. You know, those guys are just awesome. Some of these people you've never heard of and make these custom calls are some of the best turkey hunters in this country. Make sure you stop by and talk to them.
0: That is so true. And if you guys do go to that other building where they're going to have the custom turkey call makers contest and auction, you're going to have a chance to run some of the most beautiful looking turkey calls you've ever seen. And they all sound good. They all have turkey in them. So you're going to get a chance to run those and bid on them at auction. So go enjoy that. I'm telling you, that'll be a lot of fun for you if you like turkey calls. So good deal.
1: No doubt. Wrap it up.
0: All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. And happy vacation, Cameron. Goodbye. Goodbye